Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today I've caught Liana Dingili. A proud Londoner with a mix of Sicilian and Scottish heritage, Liana is a strategic consultant and business leader who has helped guide some of the world's most successful organisations. Prior to going independent, Liana was Executive Strategy and Development Director for EMEA at Siegel & Gale, working with the likes of Bayer, Sainsbury's Argos and Hewlett-Packard, and has also held the position of Head of Consulting at Dragon Rouge. Liana says it's about the balance of logic and magic. A lot of things are very logical, like brand architecture and business structure, but it's also about the magic that can come from that. Welcome to the show, Liana. Hi, Giles. Thanks for having me. Right, seven quick fire questions Mac or PC? Mac. Red or white? White. Mind or machine? Both. Network or independent? Independent. Is the right answer. <laughs> um, Sicilian or Scottish? Ooh, um, <laughs> oh, both. That's mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've had some inside intel on this one. Uh, country and Western Girl or Tom's Diner? Oh, country and Western girl. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, logic or magic? Uh, Magic. Nice. Well done. That was easy. So, um, Liana, how did it all start for you? So what was your first job inside or outside this industry? And then how did it all start in the industry for you? Oh, good question. I mean, technically, I guess my first unpaid job was I used to figure skate. I did it for about 10 years and I was... um, I did it myself, but I was also a coach to um, kind of kids and adults uh, who were learning their way through. But in terms of my first, I guess, paid job, I was a chambermaid, actually. Um, and I absolutely loved it. Um, I think a bit like my <laughs> a bit like my mum, probably. I love a glimpse behind closed doors. So um, uh, <laughs> absolutely loved it. Um, and my first proper job uh, was brand manager for Thompson Holidays, actually, which is now TUI um, and now... Um, yeah, up and down as an industry and as a business goes. Um, but I actually applied for a grad scheme there um, after uni and it was for a product role um, predominantly. And I was going through the the kind of um, two days and over the course of two days, there was a director there who was involved in sort of picking um, the right talent for the right teams. And he sort of just interrupted everything and he said, um, I think you should go for this. And there was a brand manager role there which just set my career on a different path, really, in terms of the focus of it, which was brilliant. And, you know, here I am today, and I'm very grateful to him uh, for doing that. Um, and I've kind of never looked back, really. So so that's good. And I was trying to think, I'm trying to think now, what's the connection between them? And it's probably a bit of hospitality, a bit of a service kind of role, front line, but also probably 
through the agency life looking back probably working all hours and clearing up a bit of mess along the way so um yeah two two first jobs yeah nice okay cool I had no idea that you had a figure skating background oh crikey yeah I I threw that in didn't I it's gonna trip me up (laughs) (laughs) and do you still do you still skate I well I dabble I'm one of those people who now get frustrated when they go to one of the Christmas rinks um and I can't actually move anywhere or lift my arms or my legs for health and safety reasons so um not really not the way I used to I used to do it every day I used to get up at 5 a.m go and skate and yeah it was everything for a long time but no I'm too old and too creaky now to do that (laughs) amazing um, and am I right in saying you do also have a degree in management with tourism? So that industry was was a, obviously a good fit from that perspective. Yeah, I do. I kind of, I feel like I fall into most things, to be honest with you. There's very little that was, given I'm a strategist, that's kind of weird to say, but there's very little that's deliberate uh, about the, the sort of path. But um, even kind of going into a business degree with a specialism in sort of travel I did German I sort of added things to it I always loved travel I always had multiple cultures in my life yeah I I did that and then I went straight into the travel industry so I started client side uh, as I mentioned uh, and then was there for a few years actually different roles TUI Thomas Cook British Airways which was fascinating um, in so many different ways proud as well you know working for a, a British brand and a flagship brand so yeah so I started client side and then I stepped over to the dark side at some point along oh the dark side is that right it's the dark side not I'm always one I always wonder which way around that is yeah well it could be either right so um it's very interesting doing both I think you you kind of I mean they're one side I mean at the end of the day both work together to to get a great result so I think um I just always joke about it being the dark side because I was sort of pulled into it along the way somehow so okay so let's go with that then so what was it like going to the dark side then and actually what what caused that that switch to Dragon Rouge? Yeah, I, well, it came from, so my last sort of client side role officially was, um, I was working for a company called London Partners, which basically was responsible for promoting London um, as a destination locally uh, here in London, domestically, internationally, getting more inward investment, more students, more business, more tourism into to the city. So um, it was a really cool role. My brand was London. I mean, you're never going to have a brand as amazing as that and as ever changing as that. Uh, and yet such a solid story and, and background. So or history rather. And so I was working on the bid actually, as many people were in many organizations connected to it and sort of working to, to win it for 2012. But then once we did that, through that process, I was working with Dragon Rouge actually, it was my agency at the time. Um, they didn't work on the Olympic brand or anything, but they were sort of part and partial of all the sorts of work that we were doing. And I was working with them and, and just really enjoyed it. I ended up being a if you like a consultant to lots of different London organizations through that role Um, so it was a sort of natural progression in many ways and I sort of just wanted to expand my experience um, take my skills elsewhere um, into different industries into different markets and it felt like the right time to do that really and Dragon Rouge was an and still is an amazing company to do that with. Nice. And and specifically going client to agency side. So I've spoken to numerous people about that on the pod. And, and the one that stood out most to me was probably Bob Hoffman. And he, he I think he remarked at the time that he actually felt like because agency folk like to tell themselves that it's, it's, it's harder to go client to agency than it is agency to client. Now, 
client side might say the same thing in reverse but bob said from going client side he actually joined an agency where he suddenly felt like the smartest guy in the room so i think i think comparatively he joined an agency where the average smarts weren't as high as they were when he was at i think it was panasonic so how but how was it for you going into agency from client and what were the key things that were hard or, or at least difficult to transition to yeah that's a really good point i did listen to that i Some of the hardest things, I mean, some of the things you realise are really important, I guess, are uh, empathy is a really big one, which is probably expected to say, but that's that's the one that just um, over the last 15 years has really um, stuck out to me. And I've really noticed it when I've been working with different clients and what they value. I I underestimated it, though, hugely when I went from client into agency. Um, I sort of stepped over and, as I put it, and somebody said to me, actually, when I first started at Dragon Rouge, try not to go native too quickly. Try and remember that you do have that experience and that understanding of how to take a brand to market, what it's really going to take internally to get it through an organization um, and so on and so forth. And they said, be, be careful to just keep taking a step back as you as you sort of transition into this role um, and that was really good advice because I did I did find that all the things I thought were just really obvious in many ways and I just assumed everyone in the agency would get um, or didn't and so a little bit similar in a way to what Bob was saying you sort of don't realize how valuable some of the experiences you've had um, are uh, until you have to kind of apply them somewhere else uh, and step on the other side so so there that. But then there was also, I think one of the interesting things was everyone in, not everyone, but quite a few people in the agency would sometimes expect you to have a crystal ball of what the <laughs> client was thinking. What was it? What's it in their heads? Well, I don't know. <laughs> just because I was a client and just because I have a degree of empathy in terms of how they need to do things, it doesn't mean that I know them and I know their business yet, just like you. So I think there was a little bit of, it, it just doesn't work like that. So so that was good. I think also just jargon. I, I love the way you're all about, you know, let's rid the industry of of jargon and it confused me first I think coming as a client you sort of when you're a client you're almost like a little bit nervous to speak and say what do you really mean um by that and then when I got in there I was like what do you mean (laughs) how many things can you possibly have so um I mean, yeah, the good thing was, I think Dragon Rouge were pretty, they're, they're a great agency and they're really good at what they do. So no, I never felt like the smartest in, in the room. I just felt like I needed to remember what I could bring. Yeah, I'm sure um, I'm sure Bob's point was specific to the agency rather than agencies. Broadly speaking, the one thing he, do, he did say and he says is, is in, remains true is it's, he's always said agencies are, are terrible places to work, but brilliant places to hang out. <laughs> yeah. I would say there is there's a lot more generally speaking and when it works there is a lot more um you do feel the sense of team you know and by and large I mean I worked in big organizations as well and even though I felt that within the client teams close around me when I got into the agency it had definitely that sort of you know collaborative family dynamic that I really loved um and some people thrive in that some people don't uh I think now what we're seeing is different agency cultures needing to evolve as well and appreciate differences in how people work yeah that's true I mean one of the things that I absolutely loved going client to agency and back around again is I worked on quite a few clients 360 so British Airways I worked on as an as a consultant as well as a as being a client myself and then similarly with London so it's really nice when you can go kind of full circle on a journey with with something yeah, no doubt. And and whilst, like you said, uh, people might expect you have a, a crystal ball, I think just being, just having that empathy and understanding of what it's like in the other role or on the other side is is hugely valuable. It, uh, lots of, it's easy and 
So I'm not pointing fingers, but it's easy, especially if you have only ever worked agency side and not had that side of client side to, to miss lots of lots of things, which is hugely valuable. Brian, who spoke on the podcast fairly recently, is is, is client side. And he, he made a great point on our pod where agencies can sometimes think that post pitch or post presentation that that's it and that it, the outcome should now be a yes or a no, you've won the work. But actually, the person you've just pitched to, the chances are they've got numerous stakeholders to try and convince as well. So actually, the agency is missing a trick by not giving them the tools or leaving them with further tools to help sell it in internally. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. Uh, and I think so, so true and such a missed step and opportunity. And I, I, because, you know, as always, and that's kind of what I... I think there's a psychology element to when you've been client side and you sort of understand how it works. There's a psychology element to getting buy-in, sort of to to sort of socialize that around the right people, um, and actually in a way that gets you a decision. But the agency has a massive role to play in that, uh, in making things simple uh, and in making things really, really viable, and in really sort of I guess dialing up all the parts of why are we the best partner, um, why are we going to help you solve this particular challenge or this particular challenge. So um, yeah, I couldn't agree with Brian more on that. I want to um, specifically talk as, as deeply as we can, really, about strategy, because that, that is certainly one of your areas of expertise. But you just used the word simple. Um, and I have a line from you, which is that you are committed to simplicity. So um, you're preaching to the converted here. But what is it about simplicity that's so important? And, and do you think, broadly speaking, things are overly complicated in, in this game? So simple answer, <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> simple answer would be yes, I do think um, things are overcomplicated in this game. Um, and I think generally, actually, in life, I mean, when we look at any walk of, of life and in most industries, um, the quest for simplicity is what most brands, most CEOs would turn around and say, I absolutely want. I think there's a difference between agreeing with that and the no-brainer side of it to actually making it happen uh, and making it real. So I think my line is it's always better and always possible. And, and I don't think I would have spent the best part of eight years at Siegel and Gale if I didn't believe that because their whole philosophy is uh, still is simplicity and the value of it. So I, I don't think it's easy, though. I think it takes effort. It takes bravery as well. I think it's really interesting when there's a very big difference between simplistic and simplicity. And I think it doesn't take much bravery to be simplistic about things, to go for a minimalist approach, whether it be storytelling or whether it be design of a, you know, a, a retailer interior or whatever it is. But I do think it takes bravery to sort of be bold and focus on the essential things. Um, you know, what really what really matters? What do people care about? What's utterly engaging, utterly exciting? How are we going to be creative with this uh, in a really sort of single-minded way? It's not just bravery in terms of the output and the idea, but I think it's bravery in terms of on behalf of the client because sometimes clients are going against the grain within their own business when they want to make a decision about whether it's a new campaign or a new product launch or whatever it is. And so bravery sort of throughout really Really. But for me, it's about focus on what's important, cut out what isn't, um, shorten the distance between somebody being able to make a decision about your your product, your service, your, your brand versus another. I think it's about celebrating the power of something in the most potent way, uh, which I've touched on. Being clear with people, I think it's interesting now. Um, I think the test of a brand simplicity is in the tougher times. 
And I think being clear what to expect and when things go wrong and how you handle a situation, simplicity shows up there too. You know, how can you clearly communicate with a customer if they're not going to want going to get what they want on time or um you know if there's a particular situation out there in the world that they're having to make difficult decisions about whether it be a, a health pandemic or anything similar to that so i think it's also about i guess for me it's also about there's a lot of unnecessary complexity i think people can hide behind it if i think about particular industries um insurance, banking, you know, you can sort of hide behind, oh, well, these are just the way things work, the sort of systems we have to work in. But actually, the braver brands are going after it. And they tend to be more tech led um, of old, but they're going after it. And they're saying, actually, no, let's look at how we can change that model and disrupt that uh, and make things better for the customer. Yeah, there's quite a lot in there. But it's so important and but so challenging, too. Yeah, I think that's um, something that's easily missed as well. It's how difficult it is to be simple sometimes. And Dave Trott talks about people misunderstanding complicated for clever, but it but it takes real brains to make things simple. And that's certainly true. Yeah, and I think it's also about getting out of your own way. Um, I think that's true of clients, that's true of agencies. There's a lot of things that... You know, whether it be systems, uh, ways of working, um, even just just simple clarity about who are we? What are we in this for? What are we all aiming towards? You know, just just your whole story uh, as an organization. If if you're not clear about that, people don't know what they're a part of, what they're working towards. And it, it doesn't mean anything to them. And, and so getting out of your own way is also a big a big part of it. Yeah, perfect. Um, let, let's talk more specifically about strategy then. So strategy has been a significant part of your career and continues to be so. We've we've asked this question to a few people and, and actually I'm quite surprised sometimes how varied the answers are. So can I ask you, what, what makes for a good strategy? Well, some of the things I've probably said already, clarity, focus and confidence. <laughs> I think what is strategy? I mean, strategy for me is it keeps you focused uh, on where you're heading. It keeps you on track. I mean, I've heard, I've heard before. You know, it it helps you make decisions. It's it is it's that it's sort of those parameters you need. You know, who are we? What are we in this for? Who are we targeting? You know, which markets do we want to, um, you know, expand into? Do we want to serve? Uh, there's lots of sort of important questions in a strategy that are answered by a strategy. But ultimately, being super clear on that, being very focused, you know, half the time being able to know what you're not is, and I've heard that said as well, know what you're not, stop chasing it. You know, know when to um, know when to stick to what you're great at and you know what your your customers really need um, is the discipline within a strategy which I think is really important and when it isn't there you can see it and I think that also the confidence to follow it I think is important and you know, strategy brand more generally is typically more long term uh, in terms of if you're building a brand, you're not going to see immediate returns on that. Um, and I think you have to stay committed and you have to have a sense of conviction within a strategy of what you're trying to to achieve and aim for. So, yeah, it's a blueprint in that way, I think. Yeah, brilliant answer. And I like I liked your points about remaining disciplined and equally understanding what you're not which is massive. I mean, people people talk about whether you're looking at, say, target segments, well, equally, you should be looking at targets, uh, segments that you're not trying to target. So understanding the not um, and using it as a, as a as a way of making decisions is is um, is really, really important. Yeah, I think with with brands as well, you know, there's there's 
actually quite a simple formula behind getting it right. And I think if you can focus on, I mean, I was looking at it in three terms, like authenticity, focus on what is distinctive, authentic about you. Um, That's the bit you can feel confidence and own and defend. Focus on, um, combine that, if you like, with what is absolutely relevant to the people that you're trying to reach. Um, Because, you know, if it's not that, then not sure what you're in it for. Um, And then make sure that it's also different and and or better than your competitors. But if you only have one or two of those, it's not going to work uh, and you're not going to be successful. So it's not all about beating the drum of what makes you distinctive. If it's not at all relevant, <laughs> then you've got to realign that too. So, but yeah, I think if you get those things right, then you'll be firing on all cylinders and you're forcing a choice for somebody, uh, which is what it's all about. Yeah. And are there any particular companies out there that you think get it right or even wrong? Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I think I think it's quite interesting to see what, I guess, if you look in the sort of more big brand space like food and drink, McDonald's is, is sort of embarking on a very interesting strategy right now, you know, really dialing up its, what it calls its distinctive assets and codes. And that new campaign, I actually think has a, an absolute confidence about it. It'll be very interesting to see how well it does for them. Um, but in terms of really owning it and really sort of doubling down on what is McDonald's and what do we understand that to be and building on all the cues of the product of McDonald's, the experience of McDonald's and all the things that, that we come to know and love, I think is, is an interesting approach. We can't talk about McDonald's without me asking you about Burger King. Ah, yeah, I knew you were going to ask that. Um, <laughs> Yes, yes. I mean, again, you know, I guess the connection between them is taking quite a bold move. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, you're talking about the Whopper, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think you could probably pick out a few campaigns over the last few months in their eternal battle to position against McDonald's. It tends to be, I mean, positioning is relative, and I admire any company that positions against as much as they position for or to something. But the mold, the mouldy, the mouldy burger, the mouldy whopper was, was is obviously the most topical at the moment. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, they've always been pretty consistent to their position. I would say um, so. On that basis, I think they're sort of honouring that that sort of Burger King, the second in line to McDonald's, and that sort of slightly annoying. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean that in the nicest possible way. They sort of, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, cool. as you say, sort of positioning against something. I think that what I loved about it, it was quite a sort of brave, honest move. And I think that it's, uh, I mean, similarly, actually, Carlsberg, I, I, cr- I really like the way that they went out there and the probably not. I think that that's uh, an interesting, honest move as well. And so taking on something that's become a bit of a, a sort of fad and actually really sort of, di- I don't know, shocking shocking your audience a little bit through it is is quite an interesting tactic. It's a difficult one. I, I, I didn't love it, but that's a personal point of view versus a, a sort of more um, expert point of view. I would say the other one I think is interesting is to watch what Starling Bank is doing. So a good example of, of a brand that has a good product obviously came in to join a number of disruptors within the fintech and actually wants to shake off that label um, and sort of see themselves and establish themselves as sort of a bank and an authority in its own right which it absolutely is so i happen to be a customer of starling so i find it more interesting than most um but i think they've got a great product to start with and what they're now doing is obviously ramping up their brand building efforts i think five years in and their strategy right now is to really sort of uh, i guess elevate the brand and also take a different 
uh, they've taken a different strategy to the likes of Monzo. So they're all about a higher value customer and actually building stability and sustainability into their business by having a very, uh, if you like, focused target versus a more younger generation, which is potentially um, the way in which Monzo have gone. But also love what they've done with regards to Britishness uh, and sort of taking it on instead of all financial brands being associated with a the city, they've really sort of opened up that feeling of being a true British brand in a true national um, way. Um, so I quite like the storytelling that's coming through that brand as well. But it all comes back to the thread uh, of coming into a market to help people uh, and to be their partner and, and do things in a way that makes sense for them. So good luck to them. I think that just committing to brand building, given the nature of their business, is is, is a good move. Yeah, we uh, funny enough, we have a listener question to come on to a bit later, which kind of touches on on what you've just been talking about. But it's um, which is a good sign, which is a good sign. I loved it when you just clarified your subjective opinion on something, and, and it was just your view whether you liked it or not. Necess- not necessarily being relevant. And I think that's a really important distinction to make, and people can get too caught up in whether they like something. I was having a chat with a with a very talented guy called Steph who runs a, a podcast called Let's Talk Branding, which is brilliant, and I, I highly recommend it. Uh, and he was talking about the subjectivity and whether people like things. And the best way of defining or at least describing the significance of liking ads in advertising was, um, do you like this parachute? Which is brilliant. It doesn't matter if you like it. It works or it doesn't work. And I think it's very easy to get caught up and have huge debates about whether an ad is is good or not and ultimately only time will tell and I'm referring specifically to the mouldy whopper there yeah exactly but also I think you know and I would say this being in the business of of brand for so many years it's so much bigger than the ad you know it's it's part and partial of and you're absolutely right starting coming back to that point on objectivity and I think our role in 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 on the agency side more generally, but also um, as a consultant to leaders within businesses, we have to listen, absolutely, but we have to be objective and we have to give the best advice that we know, drawing on our experience and our expertise, and it's never about what you like and what you don't like. That doesn't mean you can't have an opinion, you know, down the pub in, in your own in your own life, but I think quite often the things that you think, oh, I don't like that, are, are actually very effective. So, but yeah, sorry, part of much bigger thing when it comes to brand. And so, I mean, the reason I called on on Starling, but I could have called on, you know, Aldi or Lidl or the way they've approached their strategy, I think is very interesting. They kind of know who they are. They know the position they're taking and they're really building in that, into that. Um, and it's bigger. It, it translates in store. It translates online. Uh, it's in their personality and their voice and everything that they do. And I think that that's, um, that's when a brand's really sure of itself. Yeah, and they, and they clearly have their eye on the long term, which is another yeah. point that you made yeah, so absolutely. well. Yeah, um, I used the term logic and magic in your intro, and I love talking about logic and magic. So for the benefit of people who aren't sure what that distinction is, can you can you explain a bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think that the... I think both, I mean, I said magic, right? But I believe both are important. I believe there is an absolute... Uh, link between them. I think that I've come from, so for the last eight years, I worked at Siegel and Gale and our, our, you know, philosophy is very much facts matter. They do matter. You don't live, you don't remove all room for creativity. Uh, You don't stop taking leaps, but having a sort of grounding in 
facts is important you know who who's your audience what matters to them um you know what's motivating them how are they making decisions um you know where do you stand versus your competitor all of those things add up to giving you a, a clearer picture of where you stand and where you go but i do think that if you start to remove the um magic from something you are just playing i think it's simon sinek that always says the finite game versus the infinite but you're always just chasing you're never going to um be distinctive you're never going to um stand out for the right reasons and i think it needs both uh, and particularly when you're an agency when you're working through the process you've got researchers you've got strategists you've got designers you've got writers you've got all these weird and wonderful people working on things um the combination of all of those skills and all of those perspectives are really important in a final result. Yeah. And do you think that by and large, the industry relies too much on logic or magic at the moment, or is the balance evident? I think you can tell when it's one or the other. I think that very few get it absolutely right, but I'm not sure what that is you know it's it's difficult there's no it's not an exact science that's the very point so um but I do think you can tell when somebody hasn't um thought about a challenge or a problem creatively or in an original way uh I do think when you you can see when they're just following the facts um they end up being like everybody else you know if you've got two or three agencies working on the same brief for the same pitch at the same time and they're looking at the same information same data You've got to rely on something else uh, to get you to an idea that's going to, um, you know, win and work. Yeah, that's a good point. The only thing I'd add to that, actually, is is there's every chance that all three agencies might have a completely different idea and all three might have the same level of success. There, there's no exact answer in the same way. It's not an exact science. No, it isn't. Um, and I think I mean, the beauty is now we do have lots of, you know, lots of different sources to pull from. Um, but you're absolutely right. But equally, that is the, the beauty of our industry and why it still exists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I know you um, you also have been responsible for creating positive work cultures in general. Can you explain what a positive work culture looks like and how how anyone can try to create one? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I know in simple terms, um, a positive work culture, if you looked around, uh, you would see a highly engaged workforce. And, you know, that's true of all organisations, client agency uh, and other. Um, You would see a group of people that in themselves had a shared ambition, who um, shared values in terms of how they work, what's important to them, what they will never compromise. And, you know, you would see a positive performance because my position on this is, you know, positive people equals positive culture equals positive performance. Um, and I think, you know, they're down to very tangible things. There's literally a higher revenue per employee uh, in a business, in an agency specifically, that is um, that has a positive culture. And so I think there's an absolute commercial benefit to this, which shouldn't be missed. I think, unfortunately, actually, when you look nationwide, there's a lot of companies that, uh, a lot of people rather, that suffer at the hands of 
negative culture costs billions and there are lots of different reasons for that but it's just wasted opportunity and wasted potential uh, both at an individual level and at a business level and so I feel very passionate about it it's something that not only I speak about a lot but advise about a lot Um, I think the results of a positive culture is ultimately a more productive business a more profitable business um, and ultimately a more resilient business Um, so so that's so it's important I think a big part of positive culture is leadership I think that that's where we see the biggest problems creep in where you not only actually just leaders that are already there because just because you have the status and you have the title doesn't mean you're necessarily a leader and you're providing leadership to people sometimes people are progressed into leadership roles too quickly or without the support that they need to really understand what that expects of them um, and therefore that has a knock-on effect to everybody that's you know that they guide uh, and that they bring through their careers as well so I think leadership um, is is a big issue there and I think in the work that we do we talk a lot in sort of like what are the traps and gaps when it comes to um, trying to build a good culture and a positive culture one where everyone sort of trusts and is there for the right reasons and I think one of the biggest ones is success actually it's a funny one it's a real trap um, because just because sometimes a company is doing well on the books doesn't need, mean that sort of behind closed doors when you lift the lid that everything and all is well which means you haven't got a very sustainable business either so we look at those sorts of things when we're when we're sort of trying to help organizations get to a positive culture yeah so the so the financials isn't necessarily a true measure that someone's getting it right. Is there any way of measuring leadership effectiveness? Yeah, there is. You know, what I would, what I always encourage is to, um, quite a lot of businesses, they'll have a, you know, they'll have a business development plan. They'll have an overall strategy. Very few have what I would call a culture action plan, um, which is actually saying if we were to sort of produce the dashboard of our business right now, how many of those metrics that indicate a positive culture are on there? For example, how many businesses are measuring um, to what extent their employees are, or their people rather, are engaged? uh, And why are they engaged? And to what extent? And do they believe in the leaders within their business? Are they being effectively managed? Managed. You know, there's all sorts of quantified metrics that you can use and pull together and actually see the relationship between them. So just as I mentioned there, just because your business is if your revenue has gone up, uh, if you're winning more doesn't always mean um, that everybody that helped you get there will stick around because your turnover rate might also be quite high in relation to that. So you can start to sort of spot what I would call the fault lines and the weak links if you were to just look at something in a more holistic way. Um, So it's not just about culture metrics or people metrics. It's about looking at everything together uh, and seeing um, seeing what the real picture is uh, and what the real opportunities are. Sometimes that's also about making culture work harder for you. You know, so within um, within sub businesses, there are certain teams or certain individuals that are brilliant and have the full you know, support and buy-in of their teams. Uh, and it shows in in the performance of their teams as well. And so sometimes it's also being able to isolate and identify those and then transfer that, you know, and learn from that and see why it's working and see if that can, you know, work itself across more of your business. So, yeah, there's lots of different ways to look at it. And then there's the sort of more qualitative side getting a good read for that internally. Um, if you're the CEO, I always say you're the chief culture officer you should have a good eye on and a good ear to what is happening within your business uh, and where, and that doesn't necessarily mean you're down there on the front line the whole time. You obviously have a structure there that you can use. 
but make sure that you're really listening to your people uh, and what they need. And is that an area at the moment where you currently consult and, and help businesses on, or are you leaning closer to strategy? I mean, obviously there's strategic principles in, in, in both areas. Yeah, so I'm now um, I'm now working with Tonic, and we are sort of a creative. Um, we're a partnership that helps creative agencies, creative businesses, basically on all sorts of levels. So uh, the sort of connecting thread for that is growth in some way, shape or form. So sometimes that's about uh, expansion into new markets. Sometimes that's about um, extending services. Sometimes that's about coming in because we're a bit stuck in one area. We know we've got a culture problem and we want to solve for it and we want to to, to sort of be better at that. So it rather depends on who we're working with uh, as to what their challenges are. But it's always about providing that the right sort of expertise you know bringing our experience to the table uh and that challenge might be everything from ambition and strategy through to profile um you know right the way through to culture and leadership um but yes culture and leadership is a particular area of that that i both consult on and get quite involved with with the clients that we work with and that's alongside call to action pod alumni kerry o'connor kerry o'connor indeed yes yes i know she got here before me (laughs) she's quick so when you're so when you're not doing this though I understand you are a wannabe winemaker oh yes yes to me about wine oh that's crept up somewhere hasn't it yeah yes that's true um I'm definitely a wannabe winemaker I do not have a vineyard um yet although I think we did have one once upon a time in my family, which got gambled off in a card game, uh, which uh, <laughs> I'm actually not kidding. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh. No, it's just well, so, I mean, I... So I, brilliantly I, Sicilian, I dare say. I both cry and laugh in, all at once on that one. So, um, but yeah, I'm a self-confessed wannabe winemaker. And I think part of that is just, you know, obviously I do have uh, the Sicilian side of my family. My father is. We've, we've been going there um, for as long as I can remember. And... You know, I, I think that was they were definitely the roots of it. Um, but I, I'm married to somebody who also has a, a big passion for it. And, you know, for what it is, actually, it's about the wine itself. It's not just about quaffing, although that's always very nice to do. Um, but I'm just quite fascinated by the entire process. The storytelling it actually brings together everything that I love about branding uh, and successful branding. Um, and so, yeah, short answer. I am a wannabe winemaker. So, yeah, so, so one day, maybe. Is that the dream? Maybe. Yeah, I I hope so. I mean, everyone likes to sort of have a, um, is it my retirement plan? Is it something sooner? Who knows? But it's, I would, I would love that. And I think, but in the meantime, what I, I love is just, I actually went on honeymoon last year and it was fascinating to go around Sicily and Italy and actually explore lots of it, different winemakers of all shapes and sizes but the ones I really loved were the smaller ones the family run had a unique authentic story were working cooperatively with other vineyards and other local businesses to actually extend what they do and connect what they do but they had absolute this is kind of what I mean about bringing together what I love about branding they had absolute integrity of the product its source they had story they had simplicity both down to the bottle itself I mean the most simple thing you can do is distill everything all of that down into one label and successfully so I think also just the context of wine in an overall experience you know um, it has the power to 
transform and enhance a lot of different things. But I agree with Rory, uh, who was, I know he was talking about wine once upon a time, and he was saying, who drinks it without food? The Italians don't, and that is a good thing. (laughs) So we should respect that ritual. Yeah, well, Rory's also got some beef with wine, I think, the way that, that restaurants lock you into drinking wine by offering red or white you're locked into choosing a wine rather than gin, but um... oh, there's that. But you know what's interesting? English wine is really interesting right now, and I've been learning a lot more about that over the last few years. But I think, I mean, not only have they not managed to find a name and a, a sort of the, like prosecco and like champagne that could kind of unify all the wonderful sparkling wine or English sparkling wine coming out of this country, but also um, I think they got to British fizz, which was the sort of best of the bunch, which I could take issue with, but it would take some time. And, but, you know, it highlights lots of different things. You know, how do you establish something that's got the right, you know, uh, that, that sort of conveys the right things about what English wine is all about, the quality of English wine, the, at the point in time at which it is becoming a, uh, and already is a viable alternative to what we all know uh, already with Champagne and Prosecco. So as a branding challenge, I think that that's quite interesting in itself. Definitely, definitely. Do you have a favourite wine before we move on? Oh, well, my favourite red, my favourite type of wine on the red side is Amarone, which is just so rich and wonderful. And it's just a complete an experience, a complete experience in its own right. So, so that would be my favourite. I daren't pick a vineyard um, for the fear <laughs> of a backlash. Um, but um, yeah, I would say Amarone is definitely my, my favourite. And is that easy to get hold of in the UK? Uh, yes. I mean, it, as with all wine... Just because it's easy to get hold of doesn't mean necessarily you can get hold of the best of it, um, but uh, you can definitely buy it in your local shop. Perfect. Well, I will include, if you can, maybe after we record, send me a link to a, a, a particular uh, favourite of yours. I'll in, I'll include that on the episode links. <laughs> yeah, I mean... For, my, for our wine fans listening. My favourite overall kind of region, and you're going to... I mean, it's just so so expected but I absolutely love Sicily I just think I was gonna say it's not Scotland is it it's not Scotland (laughs) although you know good on Scotland it has so many other products that it should feel and does feel very proud of but I yeah Sicily is just a really fascinating um wine region and I think you know, you're seeing a lot of experimental winemakers and a lot of them, it's another thing to sort of wanted to touch on, are, are women. And either because they are daughters and nieces within family businesses that have come through, uh, they're very entrepreneurial, very experimental and sort of following some of those journeys. And I met many of them across my my trip last year as well uh, and have written about quite a few of them. So, so that's quite fascinating. But Sicily generally, if you are not drinking Sicilian wine, explore yeah perfect well that's a great call to action for the pod um i've got a couple of listener questions liana so asking the general public for their opinion be it on brexit or boat names is notoriously fraught with danger but we still have two to put to you so uh number one and this is the one i referred to earlier actually is from hannah and it's it's come in um, in the last couple of days, actually, off the back of last week's episode with Phil Barden. And she says, I heard on a recent call to action episode with Phil Barden that he thinks the best thing a brand manager can do when joining a brand is, quote, nothing. We all want to make our mark, but changing strategy and 
uh, can play with important memory structures. As a previous brand manager, do you agree or have any additional advice for budding brand managers? Oh, that... Um... And just to add some context, Phil was talking about that, you know, that kind of human want to make change. And often when you start a new role and inherit a brand, you, you might have a kind of instinct to make changes when actually you really need that consistency. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say is I think it depends on. So broadly, yes, I would agree with that, I think. And I, and I actually touched on something similar earlier when I went agency side. It's a similar thing, you know, being able to take a pause, take a step back, look at things um, objectively versus sort of just straight away, um, you know, conforming. So it's the same principle. I would broadly agree. The only the only thing I would say is it rather depends also on the brand and the company and where it's at. Because it could be that you are taking on a brand that needs uh, needs immediate attention. So it, there's some there's a dynamic in there that is probably the only variable. But generally, yes, I would agree. I think the tendency for us to feel like we have to make a mark when actually, you know, it's this the uh, if it ain't broke um, sort of principle why it's not about you it's not about you as a brand manager it's about protecting the integrity of your brand truly understanding that and that takes some time understanding how it exists within an organization as well how it's managed um, and how it's understood externally with its audience all of those sorts of things you should really make an effort to tune into before you start tinkering yeah that makes sense i mean i think uh... To, to kind of paraphrase you, it's kind of diagnosis dependent, isn't it? So that if, if, if something needs fixing, it doesn't mean you don't fix it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's it's about context. It's about, you know, I think as a brand manager, though, specifically in terms of advice to brand managers, you know, back to some other things that I've said as well, a brand is a very important asset. So treat it with that respect. So I think it, it's not, you would never change something lightly in other words yeah great answer uh question number two is um <laughs> it's very clever how mark has worded this question so he says it's a bit tongue-in-cheek i i think but I, I still feel we should answer him he says you follow simon sinek on linkedin <laughs> i'll start with why <laughs> very good <laughs> i he, he's someone who divides opinion i think um like gary v it's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, but that's the difference between, I think it, it depends how you interpret the following. I also regularly read um, newspapers and blogs of people I don't agree with. I think the only way you can um, truly understand uh, a position and a point of view is to tune into it. And so because I follow him doesn't necessarily mean and definitely doesn't mean I agree with everything that, that he says uh, or even just the way in which it is um, pushed out there. Uh, I think he has some valid points. I do think it's interesting uh, what he says about the finite and infinite. Um, just in principle, I think that's interesting as an attitude to take into business. But no, we're not, when, you, you know, we're not best buds or anything. No. <laughs> well, I think actually, um, to be fair, you, you've just made a brilliant, uh, you've made a brilliant comment about him and, and anyone else who you may not 
specifically agree with and, and and i fear that actually without trying to be too preachy here i do feel like it's very easy to lose that empathy for differences of opinion i think all too often things become binary and i was talking about this the other day and i don't really want to bring up bring up brexit but it's a good example of an in out black and white binary decision when the reality is that caused so much division and so much hostility the reality is the majority of voters were probably grayscale. They weren't black or white. And unless we do have conversations or explore other people's points of view, we're only ever going to amplify and, and keep festering in this in this hostile environment. So I think you made a really good point there about just because you follow someone or read someone's blog, it doesn't necessarily mean that you, you believe or, or agree with everything they say. No, I think that's true. And I also think that um, it translates to the issue of, you know, just to take on another challenging topic, um, but important one is equality within the workplace and women uh, and, and, the, and the sort of real valid um, and important mission to achieve equality and but to do it in the right way and to do it in an inclusive way because if you don't um, fully understand the blockers to that whether they be male or female or otherwise then you can't understand how to overcome certain perceptions certain biases either so I think it's the same principle um, just because you don't agree and just because at this point in time you may stand in different places on a subject doesn't mean you can't work together and get to uh, something either uh, something important yeah well said so the final part of the interview then, Leanna, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. So number one is, what advice would you give to your younger self? I would say know your stuff, no shortcuts. Uh, it's I've just learned that along the way. Um, I don't think you can bluff your way through this, any job, but this job in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good words. Um, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Can I have two? Mm, go on then. No, it's fine. Uh, no, no, go on, do two, because now we're all going to want to know what the second one was. Ah, <laughs> yeah, see what I did there. Talkers, actually. Talkers? Yeah, talkers. Um, I think, I know listening is the most powerful tool we have. And as a, a consultant, I would say I, and one of the things that, you know, in working with my teams over the years, it's a very important thing to remember. If you're the loudest voice in a room, you're missing so much. And I think there are a lot of talkers uh, in our industry um, who want to be the loudest voice in the room. <laughs> uh, but it's really actually just a point on listening uh, and just how important it is. The other thing is just bad leaders, uh, which is an oxymoron, actually, as I say it out loud. Uh, there's just no place for talented people not fulfilling their potential and I think we have to tackle that great that's a very worthy too are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners yeah I mean actually I one of the first ones is just something that to me is very timeless I read a lot of books I know you do there are a lot out there and they help us learn something new all the time but I'm also a fan of quite timeless principles. Uh, and one of those was The Laws of Simplicity by John Mayada. I just think um, sort of timeless principles for work and life. They evolve in terms of how you apply them, but it's a short read uh, and it's an essential read in my view. 
I think back to uh, people you don't necessarily initially even agree with. I've also read recently Rise by Gina Miller. And it's not that I didn't agree with her. I actually, I you know, I'm, I firmly do. But I think it's a very interesting book, Lessons in Leadership, Lessons in Activism, and and just actually her life and the role models that have inspired her and, and the convictions that she has. It's a really interesting read. I saw her talk recently as well. Um, and whichever way you went on the dreaded B subject, it's it's you can learn something from from her. Uh, and so I definitely recommend uh, recommend that, especially from a women in leadership point of view. So yeah, there'd there be two ones. I'm very interested to read a couple that have been recommended through this podcast, actually. I think one of them was Inclusify. Uh, so yeah, I will be getting on that. Yeah, the, I'm, we've, we've had such an amazing range of books from, um, I mean, the, the usual few uh, crop up that, that, funny enough, I would also recommend. So this isn't a criticism, but the Dave Trotts and Rory Sutherlands of this world. I do recall Murray Calder sharing some more sci-fi books and I think it's nice to actually get some non-industry recommendations uh, at the same time but no there's been there's been plenty um, and and I, I know for Rise certainly hasn't come up before so I'm, I'm going to check that one out. Yeah it's really interesting it's actually quite a short read but it's incredibly compelling and it's just well, my favourite type. Yeah it's really compelling but it's also just for me it's also the um, embodiment of simplicity it's very clear her position is clear and very well articulated um, and very well reasoned and balanced Um, and I think that anyone who can do that in with quite complex subjects um, gets my respect so. For sure. So we always dedicate every show or every episode I should say to somebody and we bestow that honour to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you dedicate this episode? Yes. Um, well, I, I mean, it's an interesting one. I couldn't talk enough about the sort of amazing women in my life. Um, and, you know, there are so many um, and forces in their own way. But actually my shout out would go to all the key men in my life as well. And specifically, I mean, if I can have more than one person, um, mm-hmm. I would group them together as a, as a collective here. But yeah, I don't know, father, brother, mentor, all the people that um, who and they know who they are. Um, without them, I wouldn't have been sort of so empowered across my own journey. And I think without them generally doing what they do, we won't we won't have equality in the areas. We wouldn't have rather equality in the areas that we do and we won't reach that. So I think a lot of messaging and particularly last week, International Women's Day goes to the women. Uh, and I actually think the men and I know they are as important uh, in this mission. So that's my shout out. Good stuff. Brilliant. Thank you. So um, as a final call to action, then everyone, if they head over to this episode's listing, will find links to everything discussed from Rise to Laws of Simplicity to Tonic to um, Liana's favourite bottle of Plonk. Um, how else can they get more Liana Dingili? so there's all the usual places LinkedIn and as a business partner sort of creative agencies through Tonic so Tonic's website uh, and our upcoming Tonic Talks I know Kerry spoke about that uh, before Um, but uh, our next one will be about um, sort of staying ahead in 2020 and then as a mentor so I'm a mentor for um, Bema British uh, in well UK's digital community shortcut Um, and Kerning the Gap as well the Equality Network so as a mentor as well. Oh, fantastic. Well, we will make sure we have links to those also. Brilliant. Well, um, Liana, thank you so much for joining us. It's been awesome, as I hoped it would be. 
<laughs> thank you very much. Total pleasure as always. Uh, finally, thank you to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it and, and review the podcast. We really value all support. Keep questions um, and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's really easy to find us online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try.